Acts chapter 10, 9 through 16, and 34 through 35. This is uh, the story. Peter, he is praying up on a roof when God gives him a vision. We read, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance and he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter replied, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. At that same moment, there are men that come to his residence that were sent by a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, who was a a man who feared God, and they were inviting Peter to come to his Cornelius' house and, and to speak the message of Jesus to them. And so once he did, verse 34, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they believe, and then Peter, he began to speak at the end of this, and he says, now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Okay, we're going to transition to chapter 11 now. The city of Antioch uh, is the city that is highlighted in chapter 11 of the book of Acts. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was 15 times larger than the city of Jerusalem. So, I mean, a very big, very cosmopolitan, very diverse city. Like all ancient cities, it was constructed with a, a wall around the outside, but there were also internal walls in the city, And those internal walls were used to segment the city into 18 different ethnic sectors, I guess you would call them. Um, They were to keep the the varying ethnicities from commingling too much in the city because, you know, one guy steps on the toga of another guy, offends one group, and, and, I mean, you, you have a powder keg that can explode. So they partition the city into those 18 sectors. The reason that Antioch is important is it's the very first time Christianity comes to a big city and the very first time that it comes to a group of people that have really little to no connection with Judaism. I mean, if you think that big cities are hostile to the Christian faith, uh, well, it's not how at least it started. Historians will tell us, will tell you that by 313 AD, Christianity made up 56% of the Roman Empire, and that was almost completely in urban areas. Like the, the word, we have the word pagan from paganus, which simply meant like countryside, <laughs> farmer, basically. The, the pagans were the countrysiders, the farmers, and it was the countryside that was hostile to the Christian faith. Whereas the more urban you were, the more dense you were, the more pluralistic you were, the more Christianity flourished. I think today's passage may, it may give us a few clues into how Christianity might flourish with our little community, like how we could contribute to the flourishing of Christianity in the big cosmopolitan diversity of Phoenix, Arizona, and the valley. So Acts 11, now 19-30. Those who had been scattered by the persecution in Jerusalem that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews, but some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news that, about the Lord Jesus. 
The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw that the grace, the grace of what God had done, he was glad, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians, first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus, who stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each was able decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea, that is, back in the Jerusalem area. They did it, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So all of this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray and ask God's blessing um, to speak to us now. Father in heaven, send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to open our ears, and to make our hearts ready to, to hear whatever it is that you wish to speak to us from this word. Uh, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We, we, your children, we want to hear your voice, and we pray that you would speak it through this sermon and through the table um, in just a few minutes. We ask this once again in the strong name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and all of God's people said, amen. This is a one-point sermon. <laughs> we're not doing two. We're not doing three. It's simply... What you see up there, us versus them. Peter, going back to chapter 10, you know, like most Jews, Peter refused to go into the house of Gentiles. And the, I said earlier, the Greek word for Gentile is ethnos. Do you know where in the Bible God forbids Jews going into ethnos houses, ethnos space? Anyone? You know where that's forbidden? It's not. <laughs> he, he doesn't. What they did was the, the, the zealous, the religiously zealous decided that the safest thing to do would be to create a fence around the law. Um, they thought, well, you know, because it might be dangerous for us to eat non-kosher food, um, therefore we're never going to go into a non-kosher environment, we're never going to be in close proximity to non-kosher people, and that way we can make sure that we never eat non-kosher, we can protect ourselves, and we can remain righteous. A little side note, like fences around the law, they don't work. <laughs> they rarely work. You know, if God fences something off, you don't have to draw another fence, create another fence around the outside of it. But that's what they did. So here we have Apostle Peter. He's praying midday when all of a sudden he's given a vision of a sheet lowered from heaven. And when the sheet opens, we see uh, like inside of it are clean and unclean animals wild and domestic animals, and he's told, you know, Peter, rise, you know, kill and eat, and Peter's like, Lord, I, I, no, I can't do that. I've never eaten unclean, non-kosher food in my entire life. But the lesson, of course, that God was trying to communicate to Peter wasn't about food laws. It, it was about people, right, and about our orientation toward people. The fact that every single human being separates the world into us versus them, I mean, Jew, Gentile, either explicitly or implicitly, we're always doing this. Us versus them. Um, 
between the good people and the bad people. And we're on the side of the good people and <laughs> they are on the side of the bad people. We have condescending thoughts about the them. We talk condescendingly about them. You know, the them are unenlightened. The them are a uniquely horrible class of human beings. Whoever is, you're them. One of my friends was preaching on this passage and I don't know that if he came up with this or if he heard it from somebody else because, you know, we preachers are always getting stuff from other people. But he asked this question, like, who's in your sheet? And I thought, that's a very good and challenging question. Who's, who's in your sheet? Like, when God drops down a sheet, like, what are the animals that are in there for you, the, the people animals, so to speak? It's really important for us to see that we are the ones that have this problem. And I, the more I've thought about it, the more I've been convicted of it the whole week. Who's in your sheet politically? Are, are, are the Trumpist MAGA crowd the them? Uh, or, or are the socialists who are ruining, ruining my country, are they the them? Religiously, the, are the hyper-religious conservatives in, in our own denomination, are they the them? Uh, or is it the religiously woke, are they the them? Um, if you're a very hard worker, slackers, well, the slackers are them. You think about how you, how you regard people who seem lazy, if you're not a lazy person by nature. Likewise, if you're an exercise and diet person, you take great care of your body, um, overweight people are them. If you're a patriot, immigrants are them. If you're a foodie, you know, people who dine at chain food restaurants are them. If you're more indie, if you're like, oh, I just like the indie bohemian vibe, country clubbers are them. But like, that's what we do, isn't it? We fill our sheet with all kinds of them. It's interesting that we have a city here that has almost been partitioned into sectors of them, 18 different ethnic sectors. And the very sophisticated church growth strategy that Christianity comes to this city with, we read of it in verse 20, Acts eleven twenty. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch, and they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about Jesus. In other words, they decided to, you know, cross, they cross a barrier, go past a wall. Like the supernatural power of God fell upon them and enabled them to overcome their self-justifying pride and prejudice, enabled them to have conversations with people who were from a different worldview, in this case, a Grecian worldview rather than a Jewish worldview, and enabled them to, 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 to form relationships across and through the internal city walls. Seems like um, a simple strategy and probably a fairly good strategy for every Christian church afterwards. Uh, I, we had our community group that I participate in on Tuesday night, and I told my group that I have a, a book that I think it may be the book of the year, at least for me. It is, it is titled uh, Low Anthropology by David Zoll. The subtitle of it is the, the Unlikely Key to a Gracious View of Others and Yourself. And it's, that sounds like, you know, a $4 word, anthropology. But simply what he means by anthropology is that anthropology is what you believe about other human beings and about human nature. So high anthropology is sort of a belief in human nature that you often hear in graduation speeches. 
We're almost at that time of year, <laughs> and they are hard to sit through. But, you know, the, the whole, like, you're great, you're awesome, all you need to do is chase your dreams, go for it, you got this, you have everything you need to succeed. It's like when Steve Jobs gets up, and he gives a graduation speech, and he's like, if you just chase after your dreams and work to the, the best of your ability, you know, you can be successful like Steve Jobs, too. That's high anthropology. Low anthropology is rather nicely summarized by Anne Lamont when she observes this, that everyone is screwed up. Everyone is broken, clingy, and scared. Even the people who seem to have it more or less together, they are much more like you than you would believe. So try not to compare your insides to their outsides. That's low anthropology. Low anthropology fits really well with the Christian understanding of sin, that sin has affected all of humanity, and that sin has affected all of the, the different parts of our humanity. Uh, you know, David Zoll in the book tells a lot of good stories, but one of them is he's, um, he decides he's going to get an apartment. And so he, he's in a new apartment. He finds one. He likes it. For the first few weeks, everything is going well until the fateful day that a new tenant moves in above him. Her name is Sindra. And Sindra has just gotten out of a bad relationship with another guy, and she's not very friendly. And she plays her music loudly and late at night. So the first time that she wakes him up, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and the music is just banging above him. Uh, he puts a pillow over his head. He's like, okay, I can sleep through it. Well, the second time, he thinks about getting a brimstick and, you know, hitting the ceiling and, and start banging that way. But he's like, ah, I'll just wait. Next time I see her, we'll have a conversation about it. So he does. The next time he sees her, he mentions it. And he, he tries to do it in a friendly way. He's like, yeah, I like music too. I'm a big music fan. And maybe, maybe we could just reach a compromise. Like instead of a two o'clock in the morning, what if we have a music cutoff at midnight? And he said, Sindra, she just stared at me, muttered a few things under her breath and walked off, <laughs> walked up the stairs. And the next night, the music was even louder. And it happened for the next six months on most nights, it, you know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Um, he said twice more, I tried to have a conversation with her, asking her, like, can we please do something about this? Nothing changed. And so he started trying to sleep during the day. <laughs> Eventually, he moves out. He finds another apartment. Here's what he says about that experience. That, that's a, kind of an experience that would drive probably any one of us crazy, right? He says, looking back, I can see that Cinder taught me an important lesson. I had never met someone so impervious to reason. I, she knew full well that her music kept me up. I told her many times, and I begged her to adjust the volume. It did not change her behavior one bit, and indeed seemed to make it worse. If the assumption is that people are in control of themselves, then Cinder must have been trying to offend me. That is, if human beings are essentially reasonable, the fact that Cinder kept blasting electronic dance music left only two possible explanations. She either had a screw loose or she was consciously mean. She was either, either pathological or evil. In either case, I could only conclude that she must be a different kind of person from me, a bad actor. And I think that's exactly the way that, that most of us would interpret a situation like that. It's like, Oh, whatever you are, you're full of malice or you're, you're kind of crazy, but whatever you are, you are a different kind of like 
horrible human being than I am. But, he goes on, a, a more modest view of human nature looks for alternate explanations. It understands that all of us sometimes act in ways that defy good sense, right? Like, given the right circumstances and influences, you know, we too might be you know, cranking the dial on a Tuesday night. And this is the, this is the money quote. The real question is, do we have enough imagination to dream up what might motivate us to do something like that besides insanity or malice? Do we have enough imagination to dream up what might motivate us to do that? And so he, he kind of did that kind of um, thought experiment. He said, what might have motivated Sindra in this way? Well, maybe, maybe she was still reeling from a bad relationship and and the silence was so lonely, she just needed something to break, to break the loneliness. Or, you know, maybe those were hours when she just couldn't stand to hear herself think and needed a distraction. Maybe there was substance abuse involved. Um, maybe she took one look at me as a guy, and I reminded her of people she'd been, you know, getting beat up by all her whole life, and she just couldn't stand it any longer. And here's where it concludes. He says, well, none of those explanations justify her behavior, um, and, and none of those explanations necessarily make her behavior right. They certainly would have, like thinking this way, certainly would have mitigated my contempt towards her. And what I think Zoll is getting at is that a high anthropology is going to make us shake our heads in disbelief towards others and say like, oh, those are things I would never do. They, they must be a different species of human altogether, either crazy or evil. They're just a unique kind of bad. And what in reality is going on is it, it's just us not taking our, humanity's brokenness seriously. <laughs> like not really even looking ourselves in the mirror and understanding that like if you put me in the same situation as, as her or as him, I could be every bit as bad <laughs> and as dysfunctional. You know, the earliest Christians... Um, they all worshipped, they were all Jewish. They were all worshipping a Jewish Messiah. Uh, they were all keeping to themselves. They, they were just keeping to themselves like every other group. Um, in Ephesus, the Ephesians would worship an Ephesian gods. And in Rome, they'd be worshipping the Roman gods until suddenly, for the first time, the Christians began to realize that there was an experience of God so profound that it made them move towards people who were on the untouchable list for them. Like, move towards the, the deplorables. Move towards the unclean, you know. There was an experience of God so profound that it made them want to become friends with another human being um, and worship together. And, you know, the, when the world saw this, they had to come up with a new name to describe it. Acts eleven twenty six, And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians because they were, were crossing the walls to worship together. Here's another thing that I think was remarkable about the church in Antioch. Uh, they, they were way before their times. If you go to Acts chapter 13, verse 1, you see this was the group of leaders that they assembled in this church. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. We read Barnabas. So Barnabas is a bicultural Jew from Cyprus. Simeon, called Niger. Niger is the word black. He was likely from Africa. Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is North Africa, but the North Africans weren't really so much black as what we would think of today as Arabic. Um, 
Menaean, who we don't know much about him, but he'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, so he's like coming from the upper crust of society. And then Saul, who grew up in Tarsus, which was much like the Oxford of their day. He was an academic type. And so what you find is not only did this church cross the walls, but they end up assembling a cross-cultural, multi-ethnic leadership team to lead the church. And I wonder if that isn't the reason why they started, the world started to take notice. And they said, we don't have a word for this. What are we going to call these people? I guess, I guess we'll call them Christians. <clears throat> okay, bringing it a little bit, you know, back to home. What, do, what does this mean for us as, you know, we're a church plant trying to bless our city I think Tim Keller recently wrote a book, uh, not a book rather, but uh, an article that the title of it was like Lemonade on the Front Porch. And it was his attempt to think through, okay, the cultural dynamics that we have right now when, you know, most people don't have any exposure to Christianity or Christian background. How do we connect with people in a world like this? And he said there's three things. People in cities need to be exposed to Christianity, and it happens at least three ways. Number one— They are enabled to see it, to see a genuine expression of the faith. And this this happens when it's modeled in the lives of individual Christians. Um, It may also consist of visible expressions of Christianity, be it service in the community, like caring for the poor, like what we do do with Barrio Nuevo. Uh, It could be um, art, literature, music, theater. It could be education in the present, in, you know, the form of, of a gracious Christian school, but they've got to see a beautiful manifestation of it, number one. Number two, they have to be encouraged to question it. Uh, This happens when Christians listen intently and patiently and with great respect to others' doubts and their questions, and then they respond with humility and thoughtfulness. So they got to be able to see it. They got to be able to, like, interact with it and question it. And finally, they have to be enabled to hear it, And this happens when Christianity is presented in their own language, like in their own vocabulary. Instead of using like lots and lots of insider Christian jargon, um, we answer, we give answers to the questions that are in their own heart language and that fulfill their their own aspirations. And we do so with Christian, you know, capital in a way that that satisfies the aches of their heart far better than secularism itself does. And I, I find it interesting Did you catch in verse 22 how the church of Antioch at least does part of this? Because basically, Barnabas comes from Jerusalem to Antioch. He sees that God is at work in the city. And Barnabas was one of the leaders of the early church. And there might have been a desire to be like, hey, Barnabas, we want to make you our church, you know, pastor. We want to make you like the, the top dog. And when Barnabas gets to the city, he says, in effect to them, verse 22, um, I'm not going to be your pastor, but let me go and find a guy who I know will do a much better job of contextualizing the Christian message to this city than I could. So what is he, who does he go get? He goes and gets Paul in Tarsus, who is completely steeped in a Greek worldview and is able to come in and lead the city, uh, lead, you know, be one of the leaders of the church. And so there you have it. Like, number one, just to recap it, they see it, number two, they question it, number three, they hear it in their own heart language. It seems like 
Something like that was going on in Antioch. To conclude, I want to ask, like, how might we have more success reaching people in this cosmopolitan city who aren't yet followers of Jesus? I think, number one, just if we can enculturate that whole Anne Lamont, David Zoll insight, uh, you know, that's what we have in common with every human being on planet Earth. Like, everyone is screwed up. Everyone is broken and clingy and scared. Even the people who seem to have it more or less together, they are much more like you than you would have them believe. Like, if, if you can create a church community that really believes and enculturates that, I think it has tremendous magnetism for where people are actually at. Because we look good on the outside. We act like we got it together. We have professional success. But on the inside, like all of us, all of us are crumbling. We are. We don't have our stuff together. And I think as a church plant, if we can create spaces for people to just come and experience that, um, even if we lay bare our own dysfunctions, uh, I, think, I think it's very powerful as a magnetic tool. Number two, you just keep going back to this again and again, genuine hospitality. Hospitality is crucial. Sharing meals, opening our homes, um, having after-church meals it is absolutely crucial. And it's also a great way to push back on our own self-justifying pride that runs through our own hearts. Going back to that question I asked earlier, who's in your sheet? How many meals have you shared with those who are in your sheet. Because <laughs> I promise you, if you start having meals with them, it, it's a remarkable tonic to, to your own contempt and your own scorn. It's extremely powerful in changing your own heart. The other thing I would encourage you to do is, and I know we're missing a lot of people today, but when you look around the room here, who is it in here that you know, if you told them the worst about you, that they would really respond to you in grace. Like, who, do you, who is it that you could lay the, the worst part of your cards on the table in front of, and you know that person, they're not going to shame me, they're not going to despise me, they're not going to ream me. Like, I would feel safe. That person, like, that person is essentially treating you most like Jesus, <laughs> you know, who is the friend of sinners, who moves towards us, like the worst of us, in his grace. And I know that for me, the gospel is all the richer when I see that I have been accepted and embraced and Jesus has moved towards me in spite of all of my contemptuous, self-justifying pride and all of the thems in my sheet. Genuine hospitality is great for pushing back. And the number three, you heard that language of how the Lord's hand was on them. And I think that's what we have to pray that the Lord's hand would be upon us, that it would be upon other gospel-preaching churches in the city, that, you know, the Lord would give us diverse, gifted leadership, the Lord would make us spiritually and emotionally healthy people, and that we would, we would hold out the hope of Christ for broken people, because that is the ultimate hope. <clears throat> in conclusion, a few years ago, NPR picked up a story on a Chinese man named Lao Duan. It's a funny one. So he was purchasing a train ticket on an automated system when he clicked the purchase button and all of a sudden a window pops up and says that the transaction can't be completed because the purchaser had been put on the untrustworthy list. 
and we don't have a picture of the untrustworthy list. <laughs> the untrustworthy list. So you probably know that the Chinese government created a social, social um, credit system. So instead of relying solely on financial history and issuing a credit score, the government would also consider all sorts of other things that would make you a good citizen or a bad citizen uh, by the government standards. And this could include things like, were you caught at a demonstration? Or we, we inspected your internet search browser history and we saw, oh, you, you visited the wrong sites. So in Duan's case, he was a coal miner and the coal industry just ended up tanking in China. So he accrued a bunch of debts and, and then, um, and so he can't buy this train ticket. Well, a few days later, he is traveling through town and he sees a digital billboard up there and his face is on the billboard and his name is on the billboard and it says, this man is untrustworthy. Then it scrolls to the next name and face and the next name and face. Well, uh, a few days more, uh, he's going through town and instead of like shying away from the billboard, he starts to watch every single face that is displayed there. And what he realizes is there are a bunch of coal miners that he used to know who are broadcast as untrustworthy. And he was like, you know what? I wonder, I wonder how those guys are doing, how they're feeling. And so he started contacting them uh, and uh, reaching out to them. He, he called a few of his fellow untrustworthies and he invited them out for dinner. And would you know it, friendship started to blossom. So he's speaking to an NPR reporter about this. And he claimed afterwards that these were the only people he felt relaxed around. That everyone else in the society, you know, scoffed at him for being on the list and resented seeing his face at the restaurant. Um, and that, you know, we don't want to serve you because you're not a responsible citizen. But for all of the ones on the untrustworthy list, what they were able to, uh, to, to, to form was a true fellowship, <laughs> a fellowship of untrustworthies. And I think that that was part of the genius of early Christianity, is they knew themselves to be sinners, and they knew themselves to be broken, and they knew that with God there was truly grace. And that, I think, is the most powerful fellowship that can be formed. It was the one that was formed in the city of Antioch, and we look forward to God, you know, forming it here among us. Amen.